Good morning. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm on staff here at Trinity, and we are starting a new sermon series today. And I have the privilege of preaching our introductory sermon. Now, um, you'll see there we're calling it the Forgotten Torah. And the word Torah is a Hebrew word that means law. And when we use the word, what we're talking about is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're written by Moses when the people of Israel were in the wilderness between Egypt and Israel. Now my guess is that you that if you have dug into the Old Testament all, you've probably read Genesis and part of Exodus, and then maybe you've kind of petered out and never really gotten to Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And so that when we say the Forgotten Torah, those are the three books that we're going to be studying, right? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're going to preach five sermons on each book. But today, because of this introductory sermon, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 40. There's this internet meme um, that I've seen around that says this, um, Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a jet ski. And have you ever seen anyone unhappy on a jet ski? What's going on there? Well, what's going on is that it's saying that Money itself can't make your life worthwhile, but it can provide you with enough distraction that you don't have to think about it. But here's the thing, in our modern world, our lives are just absolutely full of jet skis, things that distract us from, allow us to avoid the meaningful, deep things of life. And our lives are just so um, empty of meaning, right? They're so distracted that our religion becomes kind of empty of meaning as well. This, of course, has some extremes. I don't know if you know this. More power to you if you don't. But Kanye West has this little um, worship service that he does. And um, he basically they call it Sunday service. They invite famous people so they can live stream it. And everyone dresses in white and... Kanye raps his own music, okay? Kim Kardashian said about his wife, she said this, there's no praying, there's no sermon, there's no word, it's just music, and it's just a feeling. Right? This is what we might call a jet ski religion, right? It's a faith that not only, like, not only does it fail to give our life depth and meaning, it actually distracts us from the real depth and meaning that is on offer to us in the Christian faith. And our, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we sometimes, or, or maybe for some of us most of the time, have kind of a, a jet ski faith? I'm sure you probably know someone who is absolutely convinced that they are a Christian because they, they went to a youth camp once and, and said a certain prayer, Right? And yet their lives reflect absolutely zero growth, zero desire to live as a Christian. But they're positive that they're good because they said a prayer once. This is jet ski Christianity. When you feel a sense of security or like warm fuzzies without allowing the Lord to shape you or interrupt you, it's empty. It's, a, it's like a get out of jail free card and that's it. But sometimes like sometimes we have a, a jet ski faith and we don't really know it. So I've kind of been reflecting on myself and this week and I've been thinking about how um like I'm I'm someone I like to be right. I like to understand the way the world works, right? And Christianity makes the most sense of the world to me. 
so I love it, right? But is that the only reason I'm a Christian, right? So that I can get it? I mean, you can you can love the things of God, but not love God Himself. That's a jet ski religion, right? Where's the eternal purpose? Where's the eternal meaning? What is the point? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are going to present to us an antidote to meaningless Christianity. If you were to turn to Deuteronomy 6, you would see God, through Moses, instructing the people on how they are to treat his commands. He tells them to bind God's words on their hands, to guide their actions in their heads, to guide their minds. Write God's words on your door frames to govern your homes and their gates, to govern their cities. They're to talk to the, about them when they stand and when they sit and lie down and, and walk. And they're to be on their minds all the time. And they teach them their children. And they define your family and your children and your children's children. They are your everything. This is not a religion of empty platitudes, of feeling good, feelings, a sense of security. It's a, it, is a, it is a religion that means everything. It is an entire nation who found all-consuming purpose and meaning in what God had done for them, what God was doing, what it meant that God was in their midst. And that's what we're after in this sermon series. We're after a meaningful, deep, profound faith. Faith in who? Jesus. Jesus would say in John chapter 5 that Moses wrote about him. You're never going to see the word Jesus, the name Jesus, or any of that. You're never going to see the word cross in in the Torah. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we actually understand the significance of who Jesus was and what he did when we understand passages like Exodus 40 today and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as we're going to study over the next few weeks. Jesus Christ will be the absolute center of everything we do in this sermon series. We have an agenda. We want to know what it is that Moses says about Jesus. That's what we're we're after. And listen, if if we give ourselves to these books... We'll know and cherish our Savior more profoundly, and we will find in our lives more meaning, more enduring significance. Okay? One of the things that we really want to um, inculcate in ourselves and in this church is that um, Scripture doesn't drop out of the sky, by which I mean Scripture always has a context, right? We don't do like proof texts too much around here, right? doesn't drop out of the sky. And, and, and we need to understand the context in which it comes if we're going to actually unpack the full meaning of, that, of, of these passages. And of course, in, in, a, in books like these, that fe- the content feels so disconnected from us, we particularly need to understand the context. Okay? And so our passage today, Exodus 40, is going to give us some context. But we actually need to understand the context of Exodus 40 if Exodus 40 is going to give us context for Leviticus. And so we're going to spend time in Genesis and Exodus today to kind of unpack so we can know where we are in the story. And so we're actually going to, um, I'm just going to go ahead and read our passage. And then we're going to, so we, then we're going to kind of catch up to where we are. And then we're going to deal with the astonishing event that we see here in Exodus 40. So if you're willing and able, please stand with me out of reverence to God's word. 
Um, Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. Hear now the reading of God's word. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. Please be seated. Okay. We need to get, we need to get caught up. So let's go. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, way back. God created the world. He created it as as a perfect reflection of his creativity, his goodness, and his beauty. And of course, most importantly, he created it as a perfect home for his greatest creation, mankind, human beings. And And Genesis tells us that in the garden that God created for Adam and Eve, he walked with them. Now, this is really important, a really important idea that God would walk with them. Now, when, when, you, when you're reading your Bible and it said, and it think, when the biblical authors think of heaven as a concept, it's not thinking of, you know, some place that's like cloudy and bright out past the moon. What, when the biblical authors are thinking about heaven, what, it, what they're dealing with is heaven is the, is the place where God's most immediate presence is found. Okay? Heaven is where God is. And so you have in the Garden of Eden, God walking with Adam and Eve. In a very real sense, you have heaven and earth together. Do you see that? Where God is and where God, man is are the same place in the Garden of Eden. But of course, for Adam and Eve, that wasn't good enough. And they, and they rebelled. They decided to live without reference to God, right? They were rebelled. They disobeyed. They sinned. And of course, because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God, he graciously banished, like, his, his holiness, his perfection would have destroyed them, so he banishes them from the garden. And in that moment, heaven and earth, which were together, are separated. Okay? This is important. The dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of man, were together in the Garden of Eden. And with sin, when sin comes, they are separated. But even as this is happening, God promises Adam and Eve, he promises them that one day they'll come back together. One day he's going to start a reconciliation project of bringing God and man back together, to dwell together, to walk together, to know each other. Now, we like to imagine, as if we know better than God, that maybe he should have just snapped his fingers and figured it out, you know, fixed it right there. But God, in his providence, he decided to use human beings in all our messiness and all our drama. And he decided to do it through a particular man and his particular descendants. And that man's name was Abraham. Now, when God called Abraham... He promised him descendants. He promised him land, the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. And he promised him that through him, 
God would bless the nations. God would bring blessing to the whole earth. That is what God is. What's happening there? And this is in Genesis 12. God is saying that Abraham, through you and through your descendants, in the land that I will give you, I will bring about this reconciliation project that I promised back to Adam and Eve. I will bring heaven and earth back together finally. Now, there are 38 more chapters in the book of Genesis, right? And you fin- when you finish Genesis, what you see is you see the people, the, Abraham's great-grandchildren, of which there are many, and great-great-grandchildren, move to Egypt to escape a famine. Now, the people, the, prom- the people of God are moving out of the promised land to survive. And then you have... Between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1, approximately 400 years pass while they live in Egypt. And in that 400 years, the people of Israel multiply rapidly. And the Pharaoh of Egypt, he gets scared, and so he makes them slaves. Okay? So picture this. The people that God had promised to use to bring about this ultimate, re- like, ultimate reconciliation of God and man are slaves in Egypt. But God comes to rescue them. He tells Moses from the burning bush that he will set them free and fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, their father. Now, God rescues the Israelites by sending these ten successive judgments on Egypt. We call them the ten plagues, right? And, and it gets so bad for the Egyptians that they're like, please leave, please get out of here, go, we can't do it anymore. And so the people of Israel start leaving Egypt, but as soon as you know, Pharaoh can see their back, he realizes, wait a minute, I need my labor force, and he comes after them. And the people of Israel are backed into a corner, right? They have an ocean at the, the Red Sea at their back, and they have Pharaoh's army at their front, and they say, what in the world is going to happen? And of course, God rescues them again. He splits the ocean, or the Red Sea. They walk through it on dry land. It's an escape route that only God could have provided. He rescued them again. Well, why did he rescue them? And this is a question that the Israelites, they they struggle with. Did he do it just to, like, show that he could, just so he could be impressive, so that people would be wowed by him? No. And what they find out is that God rescued them because he wanted a relationship with them. He wanted to know them. He wanted them to know him. He wanted to dwell with them. He wanted a people group where God and man can dwell together. He wanted, if we think about the Garden of Eden, he wanted heaven and earth to come together in this people group, the reconciliation of God and man. Listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus 29. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I'm the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. Right? He brought them out of Egypt so that he could dwell among them, so that he could know them, so they could know him. And so he tells them to build a tent. Well, it's, it's like a, it's a temple, right? It's a mobile temple. And God gives them very specific instructions, and after a couple hiccups, some speed bumps along the way, they build it exactly how he tells them to. 
and they finish it. And then the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, the Savior of Israel in his perfect holiness and goodness, the one only true God, he comes and he fills the tabernacle with his presence. The immediate presence of God is on earth. Heaven, the tabernacle is literally heaven on earth. That's what's going on in Exodus 40, is heaven on earth. God is among his people. He dwells with his people. It is a huge deal. And that's where we are in the story. And I hope you're starting to see why in Deuteronomy 6, God would be so specific in saying, telling parents to tell their children and repeat it again and again and again and again because it was everything. It wasn't just something that they intellectually assented to. It was something that happened to them, that they knew. It was God loving them, saving them, rescuing them. They could not conceive of themselves as some... uh, They couldn't find significance in themselves apart from what God had done. In that moment, and when he had saved them, what he was doing among them, why he dwelt among them, it's a huge deal. Now, one of the reasons our faith can be meaningless, can be shallow, is because we don't have that kind of faith. Because we don't understand it like that, right? It doesn't get down in us. It doesn't shape our identity, everything we are. We don't understand ourselves through this lens of what God has done for us. So, okay, self-diagnosis. And this is really piggybacking over Ronnie, off of Ronnie's um, parenting class yesterday. Think about, think about your parenting and the things that are important to you, uh, you know, that you want to, for your kids, um, or if you're not a parent, just in your life in general. Um, you have, uh, you know, school, um, sports, church, friends, music, right? Whatever. This is problematic if we understand our faith like this. Why? Because if, you're, if your faith is one of the important things in your life, you have a jet ski faith. Like, our faith is just like it would have been for them, like, absolutely the center core of how we understand everything that happens in our life. It is everything. It's how we make every single decision. We should not be able to conceive of ourselves apart from the rescue our, our rescue, our salvation, what God has done for us. Now, listen, I work at a church, right? You might just be thinking, okay, stop being so heavy-handed and self-serving. Like, of course, you want to fill up the pews. <laughs> but, it, like, just consider for yourself, like, think about a, a Hebrew dad, right? The, the, the waves of the Red Sea had just, like, cra- closed behind you, drowning Pharaoh and his men, right? The most powerful, just close behind you. And you're like, listen, Josh, okay. You know what's important in life? Uh, God, uh, baseball, school. That's what I want you to focus on, those three things. No, like it was their everything. It wouldn't make sense. It defined everything about their lives. It was not peripheral in any sense of the word. It was everything. It only makes sense if these kinds of things have happened to you. You can't help it. 
You know, maybe if part of the reason our faith is peripheral is because we haven't, we don't realize what it means that we've been rescued. Right? Okay. There's our background. We're caught up in Exodus 40. Let's look at Exodus 40. Um, sometimes, sometimes when I'm brushing my teeth, I have this moment of existential crisis where I'm sitting there brushing my teeth and it hits me like, I'm going to have to brush my teeth every day for the rest of my life. Like, is this all I'm living for? <laughs> right? I start to get panicked, like, ah, oh, the monotony. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm useless. I'm pointless. I'm worthless. What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you guys don't experience that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, but, so, but think back in... in, in um, Think back in Moses' day. Think about their, their lives are by, would have been, by our standards, terrible, okay? I mean, think about what, the, you know, they're, they're farmers. Um, so they spend their entire lives in the sun doing back, back, uh, back-breaking work, right? They're planting, they're sowing, they're weeding, they're praying for rain, they're maybe hauling water so they can kind of scrape by for, you know, probably... 32 years or so, and then they would die, and then the next generation just scraping. And imagine just the, the monotony of that for your whole life, and that's all you have to look forward to, right? There's no, you can't, it's not, you're not saving for a trip to Europe, right? You're not, you're not checking Instagram. There are no jet skis, right? There's no way to distract yourself from the monotony of life. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, Another translation says, everything is meaningless, completely meaningless, right? He's he's, he's saying like, ah, it's so monotonous. What is the point? So put yourself in their shoes and then think about these words. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud, of course, signifies the presence of God himself. You know, the word awesome has been um, just completely stripped of meaning by overuse, right? Um, but God's presence is awesome in the overwhelming, like, reverence and just fear-inducing awe sense of the word. Like, overwhelming presence of God is in their midst, And you know what? They can see it every day. It says there in verse 38, it's in the sight of Israel throughout all their internet. Everyone can see the presence of God in their midst at every point in their life. Right? The monotony of their lives, the same pointless things day after day after day. The glory and the but the glory of God was in their midst. What did that tell them? It did it, it told them that their lives was not a were not a blip of nothingness. You know, if you think so think about have you if you've ever met a famous person, you know that feeling of like oh, you feel good for a minute, right? So when we were working out in La Armiga um, a couple months ago. Carlos Delgado was there. He's a Hall of Fame baseball player, and I got to meet him. And I like baseball, okay? And do you know that there are a lot of people in this church that have met Carlos Delgado? Like, we're a big deal, right? Now, 90% of us have literally no idea, nor care, 
right? But what if, like, God himself, you have met him, right? What if everyone around you has met God and he is always there? God doesn't get old. He doesn't die. He is always God and he is always there. Your life means something. But what else does it mean? It means that the things that you do mean something, right? Listen, I change a lot of diapers. Does that mean anything? (laughs) Listen, I change diapers in the presence of God, right? He's there. (laughs) He wants me to do it. He wants me to do a good job. I can glorify him through changing diapers. What? Right? He doesn't, he doesn't get forgotten. Like, sorry, Carlos Delgado will be forgotten. He already has been. Right? Unfortunately. God will not. It's enduring. It's eternal. There's purpose. You know, I don't know if you guys remember from Exodus, or sorry, um, Ephesians 2. We just finished a sermon series on Ephesians And in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that the people of God are being, he uses the the metaphor of a temple. He says that you guys are all different bricks in this temple. And this is what he says. Hang on, where where are we? Um, He says that you are being built up, built together into a dwelling place of God for his spirit. In the church, the spirit, God is dwelling by his spirit here among us, like our lives are in the presence of God. Like when we're here, that's what we're doing. But guess what? His spirit goes with us when we go out and we live our whole lives in the presence of God himself. Eternal purpose. One of the things that eternal meaning, like we matter. We matter. The things that we do matter. But one of the things we're going to learn, particularly in Exodus, um, is that the presence of God is dangerous. Do you see there in verse 35, it says that Moses could not enter the tabernacle, right? Because of the glory of God that was there. Leviticus is going to ask, how in the world do a sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God? And Leviticus is God teaching his people how to come into his presence. Guess what? It doesn't happen flippantly. You don't just do it. It's serious. (laughs) And the Israelites would shape their entire lives. Everything would be shaped around coming into the presence of God. What does it mean that God is in their midst? Their whole lives would be shaped around that. That's what we're going to see in the next few weeks. Now, you see that when the presence of God moves, they move with it. They want to be with it, right? They want to be with the presence of God. They want to be with God. And what we're going to see in Numbers is What happens when God leads them? The presence of God leads them towards the promised land, and sometimes they follow it, and it goes really well, and sometimes they don't, and it goes really poorly. We're going to see that in Numbers. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy, we're going to see God reminding the people that he wants to dwell with them 
that he wants to know them and for them to know him. And he promises that he will be with them and will be faithful and will keep the, the covenant, the relationship that he has made with them. Okay. Um, I want to conclude with this question. How do we, what have you and I done to come into the presence of God, of a holy God? What have we done? You know where I'm going with this, right? Look with, look with me in your bulletins at um, the New Testament reading. Um, listen, guys, there are so many New Testament passages that, this, that Exodus 40 fills out, like helps us understand better. This is one of the most important. It says there in verse, in verse 14, it says, in the word, this is the Apostle John, in the word, and by that, of course, he means um, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, when, when John says the, that the word came and dwelt, that word dwelt in Greek, if you were to translate the Greek, literally it would say, pitched his tent. Right? The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. What is John doing? John is looking back to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And he's saying that God became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. Jesus is God dwelling on earth amongst his people. That's what Paul or John is getting at here. Like the God and man are inseparably joined. They're reconciled in the person of Christ. And it's by the person of Christ that it's the person of Christ that will bring about that final reconciliation. There are two great salvific acts in the Bible. One is the exodus, the freedom from Egypt of Israel. And the second is the death and resurrection of Christ. We here today, we are beneficiaries of both, right? But we are particularly beneficiaries of the second and greater of those rescues, of those salvations, of those salvific acts. And listen, God did not do that he did not go down this road just so that everyone would be impressed by his power so he could wow people. He did it because he wanted a relationship with you. He wanted to know you. He wanted to walk with you. You know, in Revelation 21, it, it talks about the final consummation of these things. And what does John say? He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be their God. Like This is the story of Scripture. This is the language of Scripture, God dwelling with his people. And he will do so finally and fully in the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven and earth will be eternally and finally and inseparably joined. And that's what we're looking forward to. And that is what gives our lives meaning and purpose. Not just temporal, not just fleeting, but eternal purpose today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you, um, in your grace, offer us significant lives. 
God, we pray that you would um, dwell among us, that you would dwell in our homes, in our church, in our hearts. Lord Jesus, by your spirit,